Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be talking about vanadium and the investing thesis behind it. Hopefully, you're going to take us, take us through the supply demand story there and maybe some of the innovation coming out of the sector. Uh, but first, before we do, if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourselves, 30 seconds or so. Chris, we'll start with you top left, work our way around to uh, Terry, Fortune, and then Mark. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Chris Reid. I'm the Managing Director and CEO of Neo Metals. We're an Australian listed developer of projects in uh, advanced materials. And uh, we have a vanadium project that we are looking to develop in Finland. Very good. I'm Terry Perlis with US Vanadium. Uh, I'm a member of the board of directors of US Vanadium, and I've been involved in the vanadium industry for 33 years now. And uh, exciting times in front of us here. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Fortune Mojapelo. I'm the CEO of Bushfold Minerals Limited. Um, we have uh, vanadium assets in South Africa, which essentially comprise two primary processing plants. Two of the four operating primary processing plants are in the world. We supply about just over 3% of the global market of vanadium, and we're also very active in the energy storage our space through Bushfold Energy driving vanadium redox flow batteries in uh, what we think is a very exciting and growing uh, energy storage market. Very good. And I'm Mark Smith. I'm the chairman of the board and CEO of US Vanadium. It's a privately held company. Uh, Terry and I are both shareholders and members of the board. Uh, it's a very high purity producing vanadium entity. And uh, like Fortune, we are very interested in the energy storage business, which requires that high purity vanadium. So pretty, pretty exciting times. I agree with Terry. Thank you, gentlemen. Look, appreciate you all coming on. So I think people now understand why you are qualified to talk about this topic. Um, Terry, I'm going to kick off with you first. Would you mind just helping maybe beginners to this uh, commodity, trying to understand the market by giving us a quick overview, if you don't mind? Sure. Well, vanadium is uh, element number 23 on your periodic table. Today, the global market is about 115,000 tons of pure vanadium per year. Uh, about 90% of that consumption occurs in the steel industry, where vanadium is used in small quantities to increase the yield strength of the steel. Uh, about Typically, about 5% of vanadium consumption occurs in the production of titanium alloys used in jet engines and airframes, and a number of uh, other applications, both industrial, defense, and uh, uh, consumer goods related. And then about 5% of vanadium goes into various chemical catalysts, typically oxidation catalysts for production of things like sulfuric acid or malic anhydride. And more recently, we're seeing a little bit of vanadium going into energy storage. Uh, looking forward, we, we do see significant growth in consumption of vanadium occurring uh, as a result of ongoing increase in specific vanadium consumption in the steel industry, that is the kilos of V consumed per ton of steel produced. And we see this happening in the developing world primarily where the quality of the steel products is being upgraded uh, as they develop their economies. Um, and uh, the chemical and titanium uh, markets are fairly mature. Right now, titanium is kind of on its back after COVID and uh, it'll be another year or so before we really see that come back. Chemical side is, is pretty stable. Now, of course, we have energy storage starting to make a significant uh, impact on the vanadium de demand uh, picture. So we're expecting to see very strong growth in the next five years in vanadium consumption, somewhere on the order of 7 to 8% per year. 
On the supply side, uh, we will see growth from existing producers. Um, as we try and put our projections together, uh, we do see as much as another 35 or 36,000 tons of pure vanadium per year coming online if prices justify that in the next few years from existing producers. But even with that, we're gonna, we're gonna be short of, uh, of our demand projection. So clearly there's uh, a need for additional investment in this space. Fantastic. Thanks, Terry. Um, for, well, actually, just gather here today, folks, is you've got, you've got Fortune Major Palo in the shape of Bushville uh, Minerals, a, a miner, and obviously, um, you know, investing heavily in the energy space with the VRFBs. We've got uh, Chris up there with Neo Metals, who's extracting from steel slag. Um, and then we've obviously got the US Vanadium guys here, which are, who are talking the game of Vanadium chemicals. So we've kind of got a quite, a, quite a nice rounded group of uh, individuals here. Fortune, how much is China's dominance in this, especially in related to uh, you know the, the steel space, stainless steel space? Uh, how much of a problem is it for companies like you, miners like you, to actually be able to forecast what the future pricing will be? Because that does affect your business. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think when you look at China, China is obviously a big player in the vanadium industry, uh, both from a consumption and uh, a supply point of view. I think what is interesting, however, is that when you look at the uh, demand side of things, both in terms of the elements that um, uh, Terry just spoke to, uh, you know, consumption of vanadium and steel, uh, you have um, uh, good visibility there in terms of, you know, the from a policy point of view with the government trying to drive for greater quality rebar in the construction space, uh, which is driving a growing intensity of use um, of vanadium in steel making, um, which means that even if you took a view of uh, steel production peaking at some point, the vanadium demand in steel, uh, we expect it to continue growing and we think China will continue to play a significant role in that respect, uh, accounting for just over 50% uh, of, the, um, of the global uh, demand. But we do see other regions also coming through. I think as you see infrastructure programs uh, in other uh, markets, including the US, uh, Europe, and we think that, and, and in emerging markets, we think that will continue to support, uh, to support demand. On the supply side, however, I think an important point to highlight is, is the fact that supply in China is quite concentrated, right? I mean, there's about, uh, uh, Terry, correct me if I'm wrong, I think about 10 uh, thereabouts uh, key producers of vanadium are in, in, in China, um, and they're predominantly co-producers. Uh, we do know that with uh, steel production growing as strongly as it has been going, and with iron ore prices as strong as they've been, we do know that the co-producers have been producing um, almost, if not at capacity, uh, and secondly, we know that the incentive to blend their feedstocks with seaborne iron ore uh, from Australia, Brazil, or South Africa is pretty much been, been non-existent with iron ore prices north of $150, uh, which means that co-producers in China are producing uh, almost as much vanadium as they could produce. Um, and, um, you know, so what it means going forward, we think is, you know, again, I think that's one of the pointers towards why we think there's a structural deficit in the market uh, going forward. Um, and China has a, has a big say in that because of the supply and uh, the demand uh, dynamics contribution that it makes, as I've explained. One other point I'll just highlight also is that China has made some very specific uh, encouraging uh, policy uh, moves as far as vanadium redox flow batteries, uh, where from a policy perspective, the government has actually articulated support for VRFBs. 
which we expect to see uh, support the deployment of large-scale vanadium flow batteries uh, in China, which will support demand further. Okay, that's, that's interesting, actually. And we'll, we'll come to some of those points um, with regards to um, China and some of the policies there in, in a bit. Chris, I want to come to you quickly. You've got a multifaceted business. You, you've, you've gone after the, the battery thematic heavily with your company. You've moved away from mining. You've chosen one of the projects you've chosen specifically is this steel slag vanadium recovery project. Uh, up in the Nordics, you could have chosen anything. You've clearly taken a view about the supply and demand um, economics and said, no, we think we can make money here. Um, do you want to share your thinking on why you decided to plump for a Vanadium project, given the erratic nature of pricing in the past few years? Yeah, certainly. Um, I can remember when I was at the School of Mines, I, I once wrote a paper in jest called Vanadium Where Angels Fear to Tread. Uh, I didn't realise it might end up being true. It is a, a more volatile uh, chemical or element than certainly my mineral economics background dictated it should be. Uh, but look, notwithstanding that, you know, we were presented with the opportunity to to look at the steel slag pro project. Um, I think it's a combination of the iron ores that were mined up in Sweden that had gone into SSAB steel mills, uh, the Linz Donau furnace that they had, very, very high-grade vanadium um, product. Previous guys that had a look at it for sort of smelting at, at different temperatures and trying to tap off the vanadium and some of the other products. We ended up just going back. We did our initial test work using sort of conventional sulfuric and hydrochloric acids, and it looked fantastic. But then we realised that you, you couldn't get that permitted, so we went for a, uh, a sodium carbonate-based leach, a little bit more gentler. Um, had to have to give it two leaches and a regrind. But you know, we've got a, a pro project now that looks like it can produce very high purity vanadium pentoxide uh, and the tailings will be a carbonate. So they're, they're relatively inert and can be used in concrete or, you know, building products. So, you know, we're pretty happy where that is in terms of, you know, where it sits in the cost curve. You know, we project that it'll be down towards the bottom. That's not because of our skill. It's really because of the grade. We've had to actually choose a, a process that's not as efficient as the traditional methods, but that is to satisfy our wider obligations to uh, to be more ESG friendly. But you, but you, what you're saying is, do you feel operating in the bottom quartile is great because you, you can make money there, in whatever whatever you're doing, whatever the pricing is. But um, do you believe that the demand is there? I've seen uh, reports where it says the next 150 years worth of demand is is there based on current suppliers into the marketplace. Do you believe that, or do you think there's more more demand to come through whatever VRFD yeah, or look, elsewhere? I think, you know, we've. We've had a pretty heavy involvement in the lithium industry for, you know, now would be our 12th year. And we are sort of across the trends within the cathodes. So I hear what uh, Mark and, and Fortune are saying about VFRBs, and we believe that VFRBs for stationary energy storage battery, if you're unconstrained on size, the VFRBs are the ultimate chemistry. We're, we're now seeing uh, Heinz Schimmelbusch at AMG pairing that with, a, with lithium batteries. 
And, you know, we're now seeing that lithium vanadium cathodes and indeed lithium vanadium anodes for lithium ion batteries uh, are starting to, they're, they're being cycle tested by car makers. Um, you know, we've got solid state um, lithium metal batteries with vanadium cathodes. You know, there's all sorts of combinations. The guys at uh, Volkswagen are even trialing a nickel vanadium manganese battery to replace cobalt. The lithium vanadium battery has the highest conceivable energy density, and we're really, really excited. And we, we actually think that the lithium vanadium or the lithium ion battery applications for high purity vanadium um, will grow to many times the demand from VFRBs. That, that's interesting. Mark, I want to I bring you in here um, on, on this conversation and we'll maybe pick up on some of these other um, topics that people have been hitting here. See, we first spoke when we, you were at Largo, right? And uh, we talked about, you know, the, you know, the, going down the chemicals route. One first rewrite for the company is smart, but obviously the bigger margins down there. And obviously now with US Vanadium, you, you were very much focused on that. Is that your way of protecting yourself, insulating yourself from these erratic movements with, with vanadium mining? Well, there's no, absolutely no question that it helps that issue. Um, however, we have really made some big changes at U.S. Vanadium recently. We've uh, purchased a roasting and grinding facility. It's about 30 miles north of our hot springs processing facility. That facility allows us to bring in steel slag, um, you know, just about anything that contains vanadium, we can take in as feedstock now. So um, we are still focused on the chemical side and that ultra high purity V205, V203. But the beauty of our, our business is we get to tap into that high end, uh, high margin business on the chemical side, but we've also got the liquidity of the steel side if we need it. And so we, we view the steel side as kind of our, our last resort for marketing, uh, and we will continue to, to serve the chemical side as our number one priority. Batteries are beautiful because they fit, they fit in that high purity sector as well. And if the growth in the, in the battery industry is what we think it's going to be, that's going to be a tremendous area for us to participate in as well. And that will actually become our number two uh, you know, sales outlet, so to speak. So we're pretty excited about where the business is going right now. It's kind of interesting, actually, Fortune, probably one for you, because you guys have been working on the VRFB, the, well, I should say the Bushwell Energy side with VRFB technology for, for a while now. And that maybe that's your way to also insulate and smooth out some of these curves and maybe capture more of the margin here. Is that, is that resonating with the market yet? Because I, I, if, if I look at some of the numbers here, the, um, vanadium use in uh, energy storage is about 1.7% at the moment. It's got some growing to do. How quickly will it grow? Look, it is still nascent. I think that's a, that, is, that is true. But in terms of the growth, um, we think it's strong. We think the momentum is really strong. Um, I mean, we see it through the inquiries we get uh, for vanadium supply uh, for conversion into electrolyte. Um, and, 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 and again, this is not from analysts talking about what they see as the focus, right? These are parties that are actually quite involved in this space that are looking for vanadium units uh, for different projects that they're developing. So I think from that angle, it's, it's, it's looking very, um, uh, very promising. I, I should also add that I think if you look at where the lithium mining industry is today, um, you know, Chris was talking about being involved in this industry for the past 12 plus years, right? Um, I, think, I think that, you know, there is, um, 
where where the VRFP stationary market is is where the uh, you know what I'd call the mobility applications of the um, uh, of the battery space was uh, some years ago. Um, um, to my point, it, it is real. Uh, we are seeing it, um, and um, which is one of the reasons why we were as bold to go ahead and build um, um, an electrolyte manufacturing facility. It's interesting also that I've seen quite a number of parties announce. Uh, plans to build electrolyte manufacturing facilities. And that's for me is indi an indication of the kind of interest and demand uh, that's coming out uh, for, uh, for VRFPs. The other, the other point I'll just highlight, if I look at just the area where we're operating in South Africa, and I will just give some anecdotal or evidence for me, firstly around stationary storage. So if we, let's, let's talk just that universe of stationary applications. Um, we have seen our own utility here in South Africa launch a program to acquire 1400 megawatt hours of, uh, of battery energy storage. Um, we've got our own integrated resource plan of the government here that is set aside some quite sizable uh, allocations for battery storage, uh, talking 2000 megawatts um, and add to it, um, you know, the fact that they have moved to relax the regulations around self-generation, uh, lifting the cap uh, to about 100 megawatts, which will open a substantial amount of uh, opportunities for people to do self-generation with storage. So I think when you start to see those sort of policy shifts, and, and South Africa is not unique in this respect, I think if you look into Europe, you look into the US, you see a number of policy shifts around stationary storage. Uh, and within that space, another interesting uh, um, uh, trend we are seeing is that the, the, the applications that are growing are the long duration applications um, within the stationary space. So the average duration of batteries being deployed, you know, it's, it's trending up, which is also a very positive sign we think for vanadium redox flow batteries. So I'm not really perturbed that the, the numbers are still in the single digits today. Um, I believe that we will see quite a substantial growth going forward. Yeah, well, actually, there's some tailwinds here because of what's been happening in the energy market across Europe and 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 uh, North America too, um, where gas prices are up. Well, if I look at the UK here, up 250 percent since the beginning of the uh, of the year. There's conversations around gas supply from Russia into um, Europe. There's a big green uh, economy initiative by the Biden administration here, but the problem that people are coming up against is renewables and its ability to deliver a base load, a consistent base load of, of energy. Is VRFB the solution? Should you guys be, because I do want to talk in this conversation about some of the innovative thinking that you guys are going to have done and will need to do. Do you guys need to team up with the renewables industry to get this thing moving quicker? Uh, probably, actually, I'll put that back, back to you, actually, Fortune, and then maybe up yeah, to Terry. Sure. Yeah, let, 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 me, let me tell you what we have done in that space and, and why I think it kind of makes sense. Energy markets are very regulated. So I would say you don't sell batteries the way you sell widgets. <clears throat> you have to engage uh, you know, in those markets at a very structural level, right? And in this space, IPPs play a big, big role, <clears throat> which means that you have to work with parties that are developing this project. Because what will typically happen is that an IPP will go to a big uh, energy user and say, let me come up with a project that will save you in terms of your energy cost, but will also give you security of supply, right? And will contribute towards your ESG contributions, et cetera, et cetera. They pull up together a project and proposition is you sign a power purchase agreement with me, right? So the end user signs a power purchase agreement. They don't have to actually put up the capex to put together this project. 
the developers are the ones who have to wrap this story together. And those parties, it's important that they understand the proposition of VRFPs within the universe of different solutions. Um, depending on the use case in question, certainly if you're talking, like you said earlier on, around trying to make sure that renewable provides a base load, you need long duration to be able to do that. You're not just talking short duration applications. And you also want the longevity. You want a 20-year PPA, not a five or a seven-year PPA. And for that reason, we think that both manufacturers of the batteries and players like ourselves who are active within that value chain, you have to work with, uh, with those types of players. And, and when we do that, we think that there are opportunities to you know, capture really scale opportunities, um, which with a single project, I'm just giving some perspective, right? A hundred megawatt hour project will require you to supply about what, 550? Uh, metric tons of vanadium, um, you know, and that's 100 megawatt hours. Uh, if you look at some of the projects being deployed in China, 500 megawatt hours, 800 megawatt hours, and that's where you start to have a massive impact on the demand profile. That's fantastic. And Tariq, and talk to us about, I know you guys were obviously with, with, with US Vanadium talking the chemical uh, language and you've got a different sets of products which you're supplying into, but in terms of innovation required to, to maybe stabilize the ship somewhat for the vanadium players, what, what innovations are you starting to see maybe over and above the VRFB conversation? Yeah, I mean, stability is all about uh, balancing of supply and demand, right? And one of the structural issues we have in the vanadium industry is the fact that 70% uh, of the supply base is really a co-product uh, material coming out of steel mills, primarily in China, but also in Russia. And those sources of supply are very price inelastic. We don't see people making less steel when vanadium prices drop or making more steel when vanadium prices going up. So the vanadium tail doesn't wag the steel dog. And so the supply base is uh, being co-product based is, is not really connected with the market. Um, as the market grows, of course, every individual plant or application becomes less important to the overall picture. And I think we start to see some stability, but I think we're still going to, you know, we're going to see some, some uh, instability as well as we look ahead. We, now, we are investing in this uh, flow battery. We've expanded our electrolyte production dramatically. In terms of innovation, we're focused on producing the highest purity electrolyte. We know that very, very low levels of various impurities will have a negative impact on the long-term performance of the system. So that's really where we're focusing our innovation on right now is trying to produce the purest electrolyte in the world that's going to meet the needs of this this industry going forward. And do you get to, you get to charge a premium for that? Is that the, that's the up the so what moment? So yeah, if you look at our business model, it is uh, we have a unique capability to produce three or four nine purity oxides all day long, and so we look for opportunities to sell those high purity oxides into markets that need high purity where margins are better, or in the downstream chemicals, including. Uh, electrolyte for batteries. So we're always focused on those high value markets. As Mark suggested, uh, we'll always have one foot on the other side of the fence as well on the commodity side, because that's that's where you get liquidity when you need it. So this is a tried and true business plan where we focus on our strengths. We receive very, very good uh, margins from the chemical business. Uh, we have liquidity required in the commodity side and the one out of 10 years when the commodity market goes crazy, we get a chance to, to play in that uh, space as well. 
And what about you, um, Chris? You know, you, you, you're still slag, 68% of the market currently as it stands. Um, that's a really simple game, as you've described. You process it, you sell it, job done. But in the past, we've talked around the language of leasing or, you know, in terms of leasing the, 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 the chemical, that your chemicals, your product, um, as all of these guys will have talked about. Is that reality? Can you track and trace and sort of see where your product is anywhere in the world? Is there a need for that? Um, look, I've, I've got to say, we're, we're, we're not as advanced as uh, the other gentleman on the call with respect to, with respect to leasing. You know, we've uh, we finished our pilot plant and, and doing the feasibility study. <clears throat> you know, I think, um, you know, we're confident we can produce a, a good quality product, but we're certainly not as advanced as, as looking into leasing. But, you know, I, I, I would welcome uh, Mark and Fortune to sort of enlighten me a bit. I mean, I, I have watched, I've been up to... Um, Ronka Power and had a look at the big VFRBs 10 years ago and was super impressed with where they were going to head and, you know, the fact that the purchase price of the vanadium, is, as Fortune said, you know, it's it's five, five and a half tonnes of V205 per megawatt hour of storage. So there's a little hurdle in terms of uh, probably the largest single constituent of the battery cost being the vanadium. And uh, my sort of learned colleagues here uh, are much further advanced. They're actually real producers. So uh, I might just be quiet and listen to, to how they're approaching it. Well, actually, well, go, go, go on then, Mark. T tell us, how, how, what, what, would you, what would you suggest to a company in its early, early stages like this? Because I, I, like I say, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that companies are changing the way that they approach this industry because of the sheer need to try and retain or uh, maintain or retain or get some control over their future. What, what, what would you say to, um, to Chris? Well, I, I think, um, you know, we look at it as a very broad spectrum of capabilities in terms of how this is all financed. And we certainly welcome uh, the, the battery owner or battery producer purchasing the electrolyte uh, outright from us. That's a very simple business transaction, very easy to document and, uh, and audit. Um, we're also very capable and, and willing to do the leasing model as well. And generally speaking, there's kind of two conditions that, that ultimately may require that leasing. Uh, one is just the volatility in, in vanadium pricing. And in some people's minds, they think that the leasing model is, is the right way to take care of that volatility and smooth it out, maybe lower the front end costs for the electrolyte. So, you know, very classic uh, use of a, of a leasing model. But the other reason why uh, leasing may become um, imperative is that what we're finding is a lot of the large utilities that, that are looking at these energy storage systems, they don't want to own electrolyte simply put, they want somebody else to own that electrolyte and they want somebody else to take it off their hands when that battery life is done. In that case, they really want that to be a, a leased item so that they don't have it on their books and, and you know we can get into all the different liabilities associated with it and whatnot, but they just don't want to own electrolyte. And, and they may have rules and policies within their companies that, that say that they can't have that. So I think you're going to have to have leasing as, as a, you know, an arrow uh, in, your, in your bag of, of ways to serve the customer. 
but the simplest way I'll, I'll still maintain is just to sell it outright and move on. So if I, if I look at everything, a fortune you mentioned earlier, you talked about some of the infrastructure plans around um, Europe uh, and the US. Is there any way, just in terms of me protecting my investment, I need to understand this thesis properly. Is there any way that vanadium gets substituted out of the production of HL, uh, HSLA steel or high alloy, alloy steel in the future, given it's 90% of the market? I was going to make a comment on the um, on the listing question, but on, on talking to you, just a very quick point, um, um, and then and then I'm going to suggest that I think Terry talks to that question because I think he 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 can talk about about niobium and vanadium in his sleep. Um, and um, but but your question about about um, uh, about listing one one additional point I'd highlight is you know you you talked about tracing. A single, a single storage system, stationary storage system, typically contains quite a significant amount of vanadium. You see, it's, it's, in a mobility space, you can't really apply leasing models because you know when when a car is moving from point A to point B, right? You, know, you where do how do you trace um, that that amount of, um, uh, of 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 metal, right, or element in in a stationary system? It's in one place, and it's typically in a secure place, and it's typically in a substantial enough quantity that you can write an entire contract and put in place all the necessary insurance, uh, you know, protections you need to put in place. Um, and the fact that there's non-degradation of the, of the electrolyte during the life, the long life of the system, just lends itself very neatly to a leasing model. But another point about leasing is, is ultimately also about matching the right kind of capital right to projects what i mean by that is if if you look most of us here as producers and you look at our capital structure you'll find that equity is a big chunk of it and not so much debt um whereas a typical energy project is typically funded predominantly by debt and very little by equity and as you know debt is significantly much much cheaper and that's because the credit risk has been taken care of through the PPA and the counterparty risk has been secured and dealt with. So what that means is essentially you can take a substantial part of the capital of this battery system and fund it through debt. And, and, and a leasing model facilitates that pretty, pretty well. And so that's why we think it's actually a very important catalyst from the system, right? So as a producer, I'm always interested to sell my vanadium when I produce it. But we can play a role within that value chain with other role players to ensure that a leasing product can be deployed that you can sell your vanadium into and which will then be the catalyst for the VRFPs. Sorry, take your time on that. Point, no, but, but no, no that's, that's, that's worth saying. I probably was just digging down a bit here because I think, do you think um, financial structuring <clears throat> is the way to solve some of the problems in this industry. Because like you say, you dig it up, you process it, you sell it, and you, you, and you have to keep keep doing that. This is a different, this annuity stream of cash is a, will change the dynamics for companies getting financed in this space. I mean, and Vanadium's not the only one to talk about. It. I think Nickel and the Copper guys are starting to talk that language too. Do you think that's a reality for you know miners going forward? Uh, as a miner, I think that I will still predominantly be funded through equity, right? But if through a leasing construct, uh, there is good uptake of VRFPs, that what it does do is it helps the demand of my products that I sell into. So as a miner and as a producer, if I've got a very solid offtake that I'm supplying into, and if that offtake is going into a lease, I'm still selling my vanadium, right? But because I now have 
very solid offtakes. Uh, it actually helps the fundability of my balance sheet as a miner and as a company. Um, but just to be clear, the financial engineering around leasing, and if you look at many ways that we talk about it, is off-balance sheet, separate SPV structured, uh, because that's where you attract the parties that are interested to take that kind of risk. Um, and also where you build all those instruments, the, the, you know, the credit risk instruments that you have to build around the leasing product. So just, just you need to make that distinction. I talk as a system, within that system as a producer, we have a role to play, but there is a leasing player, a role player who is distinct from the producer. In some instances, some parties may try to treat them as one, but they're very distinctive. You have to look at well, them. Well, well, so be clear with me here, because you want to capture as much of the value in, in the chain as possible, right? So whether whether you have different vehicles in which you do different perform different functions, you as a group will try and capture as much value as possible. So I'm saying to you is, you know, how do you for you, Fortune, would you go down to the chemical space? Because you're at the minor, you, you're talking about being a minor, you're talking about energy storage of the RFB, but these, you know, if you look at the US Vanadium guys, Mark and Terry, they're talking the game of the chemical game. There's lots of ways you can capture the value. So how far do you think you, you feel you'd be comfortable as an organization uh, to go? For, for me, just to make the point, leasing is not so much about capturing the value as it is about enabling uh, a solution that supports the demand for Vanadium. Right. That's what leasing allows you to do. Um, so I would be happy with a separate uh, leasing, in fact, number of leasing players uh, that are leasing vanadium out into the market and are providing a steady demand for us to supply into. We'd be happy with that. Um, I, think, I think it's not so much about capturing value as it is about assuring that demand uh, through what you, how you enable VRBs. Okay, smooth the curves with the distribution model. Got it. Um, Terry, back to the original question, which was around uh, HLS, HSLAs and the high alloy steels used for um, toughening and strengthening uh, typically. Is there any way that vanadium gets substituted out of the process? So, you know, this is a, a good question. We talk about high strength, low alloy steels. These are a class of steels that are typically alloyed with either vanadium, niobium, titanium, or some combination of those elements. And we're talking about steels where we're adding typically 0.3 kilos of vanadium uh, per ton of steel to the steel. And in many cases, we can double the yield strength. And first, let's just talk about HSLA and, and why it's so important. Uh, you think about the economics here of putting a small amount of vanadium into the steel and doubling the yield strength. In many cases, steel is a load-bearing material, particularly in developing economies where there's a need to industrialize to create economic opportunity. And to the extent you can use high-strength, low-alloy steels instead of the same recipe we've been producing for 140 years, it has incredible value through the entire supply chain. Uh, you think about producing steel and building your, your uh, industrial economy with a minimal consumption of energy and raw materials, a minimal pollution generation, and a minimal amount of capital deployed in steelmaking capacity. So there's economic drivers through the whole chain. If I'm, I'm a steelmaker, I'll gladly pay for a third of a kilo of vanadium to go into my steel because if I double the yield strength, I'm going to sell that steel at a 20 or 25 percent premium. If I'm building the, the infrastructure project, I'll gladly pay 20 or 25 percent more for each ton 
if if I have to use 50% less tons of steel, there's economic value there. And there's value through the whole chain in terms of minimization of energy consumption and pollution generation to get the job done. So that's why this class of steels, high strength low alloys is so important. When you look at this class of steels, there's some applications where clearly niobium is best. There's some applications where clearly vanadium is best. And there's some applications where if you have the right mill, the right metallurgist, and you're willing to deal with the issues, you can move back and forth between vanadium and niobium, but you're always compromising. There's always a best way metallurgically to make these steels. So if you go back to 2018, when vanadium prices were going through the roof, you saw a lot of Chinese steel mills uh, trying to replace vanadium uh, with niobium in the rebar. And there's some technical issues. The solubility of niobium is low, so you have to reheat the billets to a very high temperature. If you don't have that capability, you can't do it. And then you've got to go through a controlled rolling practice to, uh, to very uh, precisely produce very fine-grained steel. So it takes time, it takes energy, you have higher uh, rejects, but when vanadium prices are through the roof, some people are going to try and put that square peg in the round hole. And the one what you see is, is typically uh, as soon as prices come back into normal lines, you see these people rushing back because they're using vanadium because it's predictable and it's easy and it works. And again, there's applications where niobium is best. Uh, if we look at line pipe uh, in Arctic conditions, we need very, very fine grained steel for low temperature uh, properties. But what you also see is, is a lot of that steel containing vanadium as well as niobium because you can only get a bit of a strength increase from the niobium. So, you know, the substitutional issue is one that pokes its head up every now and then when we, we see a, a market runaway. And uh, the problem is self-correcting in the long term. Quite the opposite. I'll make one more point. Just uh, today, talking with uh, colleagues in China, what we're seeing right now in China you know, with, with the issues with electrical power are having a huge impact on a number of industries. One of those is ferrosilicon market. Ferrosilicon is basically a, a, you know, power wrapped up as an alloy. And China is no longer supporting production of these alloys, consumption of power uh, to make materials to export. And so the price of ferrosilicon is going through the roof and people are now replacing ferrosilicon with vanadium because Ferrosilicon is typically a very cheap uh, way to get a little bit of a bump in strength, but with uh, what's going on right now, we're seeing we're seeing uh, vanadium substituting for ferrosilicon. Okay, well here's another one for you, Terry, if you don't if you don't mind, because I, I found that fascinating. Is um, vanadium is not a very rare earth, but if I look at if I look at some of the conversations recently through the geopolitical uh, component coming into commodities as they as it gets harder and more expensive to find a lot of these things, um, we've we've got critical mineral lists around the world, you know, um, which the U.S. is is is, de is definitely making big noises about. You've you've named your company U.S. Vanadium. Do you, yet at the same time you talk about your colleagues in China? So I'm just wondering what what is the ecosystem for vanadium? Like because it's plentiful, we're not going to see such arguing and fighting. There's not going to be a bifurcated market in terms of pricing. Is it? Is it just going? Is it going to be fine going into the future? No wars, no price wars. Well, I think you know if you look at vanadium, we have there's more vanadium in the Earth's crust than there is lithium, cobalt, nickel, chrome, any one of a number of battery minerals. So. To question the availability of vanadium really isn't the right question. The question is how quickly we can get it out of the ground, right? And these deposits are spread geographically around the world. 
Um, China is the biggest producer and consumer of vanadium, like many other things. And they have a lot of vanadium in the ground and they have intentions to utilize a lot of that vanadium, particularly in high strength steels and in batteries. Um, but, uh, you know, if we look around the world, the, the uh, situation is that there's vanadium deposits everywhere. And so I, I don't see uh, the next world war occurring over vanadium. Just the other commodities. Good. Uh, Chris, are you still happy that you've got, I'm, look, as an investor, I'm looking in and going vanadium. Okay, there's some pretty interesting stories and opportunities ahead here. Are you still pleased that you came into this space? Have you got a, a better sense of what it's like? Is there anything that you'd have done differently now you know what you know? Well, I bought a titanium vanadium asset in 2003, so I've been through a few cycles, and there's no substitute for grade. And so, you know, Mark is blessed at Largo with fantastic grade. Fortune's blessed by grade. Grade absolves a lot of sins. Um and, you know, the only long-term defensible strategy, really, if you're in mining, is to try to get down the cost curve, right? We often forget that in cycles. So um, if I've learned anything, it was uh, as soon as I found a high-grade opportunity, I seized it. You know, uh, a wise man once told me there's no such thing as a wrong rock. As long as someone's going to pay you more than it costs to take it out of the ground. And so, yeah. I think, you know, I've always, I guess, for uh, 18 years, I've, I've watched vanadium. Uh, it's a wonderfully practical material. Like you said, it can harden steel. You alloy it with titanium to make it flexible. You can use it for the chemical storage of energy. Um, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic mineral. And, you know, I see the, there's less co-product stockpiles i've seen deteriorate over time I've seen lots of lots of blips but you know it's a commodity that we are comfortable with going forward because there's increasing applications that are coming from energy storage i think it's you know we got into recycling in 2016 predominantly you know to to source cobalt after we started developing the world's second largest hard rock lithium mine um, we could see cobalt, you know, the baseload applications were, were for sort of, it's a non-magnetic metal, but we could see the, the uses and the increasing uses from energy storage. Um, and of course, the energy storage guys can pay more than the traditional users, you know. I mean, we get to the stage where VFRBs or lithium vanadium cathodes are, are mainstream, these guys are getting the highest value in use. They will pay the highest price. They will pay more than the steel makers because they're getting more value for it. So, yeah, I think uh, fundamentally, we're very, very comfortable with the vanadium industry. Okay, and fortunately, just one, one for you, finally, final one for you is we, we, we saw the spikes in price in 05, 09, and obviously in 19. The, they're very exciting when you're on the way up, not so exciting when it's back on the way down. I mean, do you think this sector sees a much more smooth transition into, uh, you know, um, the, the, the battery uh, story, battery narrative, or do you think we're going to see more volatility going forward? I don't know about more volatility. I think we will still see some volatility. Um, I think that's, that's something that we... At least in the near term, um, we 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 should we should we should understand. 
However, I think that um, um, over time, as VRFB start to contribute a greater share of the um, of the demand uh, profile, we we hope to see that 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 volatility uh, will reduce. But I think the other point to make is that when you look at that entire you know price curve with all the peaks and uh, the troughs, um, what I do uh, you know see is also the you know when you when you plot an average uh, line trend line through, what we do expect to see is that you know the flow growing. A little bit higher, um, which we think is, is certainly going to be to be helpful. Uh, there was a question earlier on around around supply, and the key question really around supply is around um, you know what is the right incentive price for vanadium to support the development of new capacity. There is a lot of vanadium in the ground, uh, but once we start to see price levels on a more consistent level above a certain flow, we think that we will start to see more capital become available. Uh, for developing new capacity. Until then, uh, we think that, um, you know, we will see a lot of um, uh, brownfield type of expansions uh, of the type that we're doing, what US Vanadium is doing. And within that bracket, I include the kind of work that uh, uh, Chris and uh, the team and New Metals are doing in terms of getting hold of high grade um, uh, slag material and putting up uh, uh, processing facilities for it. Um, I think that you know the, the the good thing about all of this is that it is not as capital intensive as it you know as as putting up an entirely greenfield uh, facility even with some uh, decent grades that you will and good grades that you will find uh, like on the Bushford complex. Um, so I think going forward, uh, as we see demand come through, um, not only from the steel sector, the steel sector will continue to support demand in a very robust way. But when these other applications, energy storage applications come through and we start to see on a you know, sustained basis, higher flow prices for vanadium, uh, I think we'll definitely you know, see a good response from the supply side. And that response is not gonna come from co-production. As I said, I think you know, to build these steel plants, they're, they're very expensive in terms of, you know, they cost billions of dollars. And the main driver of that economics is predominantly going to be steel economics. And if you're looking in China, I think the direction of travel is more towards EAF technologies that uh, can absorb scrap metal um, you know, as feedstock. Uh, so what it does, I think, is open up an opportunity from a supply perspective from primary producers, uh, you know, secondary producers that process spent catalysts, uh, producers like new metals that are looking to process the um, uh, the, the, the slag um, in, you know, in Scandinavia. And, and, and I think that opportunity is quite exciting, yeah. Okay. Um, thanks for talking to the market. Mark, I'm going to leave it with you with the final words. Why should investors be investing in vanadium companies today? Well, I think <clears throat> Terry, Fortune, and Chris have done an outstanding job of talking about all the benefits that vanadium brings to the world. And, you know, when I fly around the world and, and try to increase our business and increase our sales, I fly in and, and I see all the uses of vanadium around and I just smile because they're growing. Every, every place you go and you see cranes in, in cities building new buildings, there's vanadium in that project. So it's everywhere. And, and what we've really got to get ourselves prepared for is that demand that the VRFB business uh, could potentially bring to our industry because that that could t- you know take up the the demand requirements it could tick up by 30 40 50% if the battery takes off the way we think it can take off 
we have to be ready for that. And, and you know, Fortune and, and Chris and Terry and I can, can vouch for how difficult it is to increase production and, and stay within, you know, what your, your cash or your equity uh, or debt requirements uh, have. So it's, it's difficult. Um, the prices that the battery guys want are not the prices that we want. Uh, the prices that the steel guys want are not the prices that we want. So you've got that constant tension of, of trying to create more vanadium supply but you know, at, at relatively constrained pricing, except in certain uh, you know specific peak, peak pricing times. So, it's a it's a it's a great business to be in. Vanadium is used everywhere, um, but this battery business, uh, if it takes off, is going to be a, a phenomenal you know game changer for the vanadium industry. And we as suppliers have to be ready for that. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.